Hello and welcome to the Entrepreneurial Journey podcast brought to you by Tricress. We are on a mission to make it happen for every ambitious SME on the planet and we're doing that by delivering you fantastic tried and tested business coaching and consulting through our app called Fuel My Business. We're also doing that through a network of talented and highly experienced Tricrest partners who are on the ground business coaches and consultants. But for today, you're going to hear from real life entrepreneurs and business owners who are on all kinds of journeys, the beginning, the middle and the end. We want you to learn from this and know that you are not alone. Enjoy. and welcome to the Entrepreneurial Journey podcast. Today I have Danny Campbell. Hello Danny. Hello. How are you doing today? I'm very good, thanks for having me. Good, pleasure. Danny is the founder of HOCO, the Homeowners Architect. Right, first of all HOCO, great name. And what do you mean by the Homeowners Architect exactly? So we're an architecture firm that assists homeowners that are um, renovating, extending or remodeling their home. So um, in a nutshell, if you're looking to do some work or improve your space, you know, we're, we're the ones to turn to. Okay. And how is that different to just going to your local, you know, uh, not high street architect, but certainly your local architect? What, what are you doing differently? It's, it's a good question. I think um, one of the kind of fundamental reasons we've called ourselves the homeowner's architect is because of the way the, um, the industry is kind of um, structured is that homeowners are quite often forgotten by the industry. And the, there's a kind of a stigma within architecture that homeowners are, are kind of like the only accessible clients for when you're starting out on your own. Um, and there's a, there's a truth in that. I mean, I think that the, the kind of typical pathway to become an architect is incredibly arduous and the barrier to entry is so high that by the nature of the education system, you almost have to go and work for a very large practice to get your chartership. And by the time you do that, you're kind of stuck in this loop of um, working on certain types of projects in big professional groups. And uh, it's quite often when people realize that they're not getting that um, autonomy or the creative freedom or the work satisfaction or even work-life balance from being in the corporate environment, they decide, right, I've got enough experience now, I'm going to go out and do my own thing. And they set up Rebecca Bonington Architects, for example, and they're on their own. And suddenly they're being kind of forced to work with a totally different client type, which has extremely different needs to the big commercial projects. And then what you find is that they kind of scramble away doing kind of all these different tasks. They have to do the design, they have to win the work, they have to run a business, deal with engineers, deal with planners, deal with building control and deal with builders. Um, And it becomes a very kind of fragmented lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And um, gradually, as they become more successful and they stick with it, they'll get, you know, maybe a bigger project come in for a housing development or a little school or something like that. And they'll bring in some staff. And then they kind of go into this cycle of, becoming a medium-sized practice and then if they do really well a larger size practice and they end up kind of like everybody else that they have a very small number of very valuable um, projects 
right. so there's always this kind of steer away from the homeowners and the reason for that is because the business model we get trained to use completely clashes with the needs of homeowners and if you think about you know um uh, somebody building a hotel you know they've got a totally different mindset to somebody who's you know got kids to deal with and uh, it's their own personal finances you know it's their big most viable asset yeah. they're going to deal with it in a totally different way in a much more emotional way wow yeah i had never thought of that so did you train as an architect yeah so i i'm i am a qualified architect okay. um but weirdly and this is very unique i've never actually worked for an architecture practice before Okay. So I've managed to um, graduate and uh, go through the, the typical process quite quickly, actually. So I, I qualified when I just, well, um, shortly before my 29th birthday, actually. And um, I'd employed an architect who was then signing off my logbook. So to qualify as an architect, you need to work under another architect. Right. And you also have to have a case study project, which is of sufficient complexity. And I was doing Glasgow's largest build to rent scheme at the time, which I won off my own back even pre-qualification so I brought in you know I hired somebody to help me with that project and I was kind of following down the same process and I felt really bitter about what they were forcing me to kind of go into like the hoops you had to jump through I felt really kind of detracted from the bits that I really enjoyed I really like dealing with people I like designing and um, I found that I could get more of that done and more kind of satisfaction probably maybe egotistically more thank yous by dealing with you know real people and uh, real small projects um so right. there's there's this kind of like this kind of um double-edged sword of you have to go through a certain process to become an architect and until you actually can call yourself an architect this protected title you get referred to as an architect's assistant which right. is so incredibly demeaning so i mean i was i was providing for um you know, a young family, um, the business was doing really well, and I would go to site and I'd be referred to as an assistant. You know, it's like such a backwards kind of way it works. And it's this kind of um, real old school kind of culture of, um, you know, um, hierarchy and all this sort of stuff. And I just wanted to kind of get away from that. Um, that, that makes perfect sense now, because I kind of I knew you were an architect, but I hadn't realized that you, you'd gone out on your own, essentially, from day one. Yeah, I know it's very unusual. Yeah, it's really unusual. And what was the what was the kind of spark around that? What led you to do that? Um, well, I, I've always probably been um, I've probably always been quite self assured and a bit kind of um, uh, disruptive in terms of not instantly going with what the normal path is, All making right. life hard for, hard for myself. Um, I've always had like little businesses that have always kind of been a little bit of a, a side hustle. Mm -hmm. um, so when I was in primary school they, in the village where I grew up in Galehead, they opened that we, we got a cafe, like there was a cafe that opened up and it was really big news in the village. And on the first day they opened, I went and said to the owner, you know, this, I was maybe about nine or 10, can I wash the customer's cars and we'll give 50p to charity. And then I ended up getting one of my um, pals from school involved. And, um, you know, he was doing the car washing as well, but he was getting a slightly smaller cut and I was using the extra money to like buy more materials and stuff like that. And it was just did it for a summer and it was really fun. And I ended up spending all the kind of proceeds in the cafe anyway. So it was a completely pointless exercise. <laughs> um, and then a few things like that throughout uni. So I was always, I was never a high achiever uh, in architecture school. And I actually, I feel like I clashed with it, but now in hindsight, when I think about when I was actually studying architecture, it was a pretty tough course. Mm -hmm. I was, you know, playing rugby to a high standard at that time as well as having side hustles to provide myself. And I feel like the actual training I got was in kind of juggling my time. Right. And um, by the time I finished, I, um, 
the reason I kind of took the leap was quite a bizarre one, actually, um, because once I'd kind of qualified and I'd got my master's and um, the next logical step was get a job at a big practice and, um, uh, you know, start doing your, your chargeship sort of exams. Um, I decided to take a break and I went off to Canada just for eight months. I played rugby there, you know, burned through my savings, had a really good time. And uh, I came back and I came back for Christmas with the idea to go back to finish the season. And while I was back, I, I registered Hoko and I was going to do a bit of graphic design and different bits and bobs to make some kind of quick cash. And um, while I was back, my long term girlfriend who was finishing her PhD down in Leicester came up to Glasgow for Valentine's Day. And, you know, a few weeks later, we found out we were having a little baby. Oh. So it's the typical like absolute spanner in the works. And I was um, I was probably 20, I was yeah, I was 25 and uh, definitely wasn't part of the plan. Um, I didn't really have a page to my name or really an idea of what it was that I was going to do. And um, I kind of had this crossroads of I applied for a load of jobs and I, I got loads of job offers. Um, it was a really kind of good time to, to be getting jobs in architecture then. Um, and I'd also set up this little company that was starting to kind of put food on the table for me, although I was living on my brother's couch. And um, I kind of thought, there's either going to be, I kind of had this vision in my head of I'm going to be stuck at this desk job for the next 40 years because I've had a child. I'm going to have to stop playing rugby. I'm not going to go out with my friends. This is this is now, you know, my ball and chain that I'm going to be stuck with. And then I just had this thing inside me that said, no, it's like, I don't want to do that. I, you know, you don't have to. I'll see how I go with this bit first. Yeah. So I decided to stick with the with the business. And I really um I got some good contracts underway that would, would, I knew gave us some longevity. Um, I worked literally night and day, um, saved up some money to put a deposit down on a house, put the deposit down, and um, we moved in. And, and uh, six months after um, I'd set up Hoko, you know, this, this little baby had arrived and <laughs> everything was running smoothly. And um, so I kind of stuck at it and I did loads of kind of random bits and bobs like um, I wasn't really doing that much architecture. I was working for an AB consultancy doing drawing packages. I was doing graphic design, all sorts of different things that I kind of could turn my hand to um, without any direction. Mm -hmm. And um, it wasn't until um, I was actually having my second child, which also wasn't planned. Um, <laughs> never mind. And um, it was maybe it was maybe about three or four months before he was born. So he was born in April 2019 and I was going through my my um, chargeship exams at the time um, that I kind of figured out that, that where the opportunity was for, for me. And um, I kind of started looking at into the, into like hiring somebody to come and join me. So um, the day that my, um, uh, my my second born Dougie was born, he was born on April the 1st, 2019. Um, that was the, the day of our um, first employee started and the day we got our keys to our first office. No. So I, yeah, it was That's a crazy day. Right. So I was there. I was there two in the morning watching this baby being born and then I was arriving at this building to get the keys at eight and welcome in um, Simon who's now our technical director um, into the into the office and Simon had come from a really big practice and I'd kind of sold him a dream of what it was we were going to do and he arrived and it was the it was in the east end it was this old um, really scruffy building it was a really scary building it had barbed wire around the outsides and stuff and I remember when we opened the door and uh, I turned to him he had his little backpack on and I could just see tears in his eyes <laughs> I was just like what on earth <laughs> and uh, I, my eyes would have been all bloodshot from being awake all night and the adrenaline and I remember he said oh where's my computer and I said oh do you have a laptop <laughs> and he said no so then he worked from home for the first week and I had to quickly go and buy a computer for him 
So it's absolute like pandemonium as usual. Um, and oh, uh, I love it's that funny. Story. So when yeah, so when Simon joined, that's really when we could kind of really test the business model. So we kind of properly launched April the first, twenty nineteen, right. and um, since then we've grown from two two people. We got um, we raised investment the next year, and we've now scaled up. And over the last twelve months, we've we've kind of grown from you know, those original kind of two guys to now over 30 people with architects from Inverness all the way down to Brighton. And now, you know, um, we were just talking before they started that today, you know, I've got another baby due. Um, number three, um, probably not planned either, but never mind. Um, boy number three is, is due sort of any day now. And we're yeah. also about to launch our um, next funding round, which is going to be this crowdfunding campaign, um, which will hopefully unlock, you know, a next big wave of growth. So, Fantastic. Okay, so babies aside, which is, I just love the fact that you're growing a business as you grow your family at the same time. Yeah. Uh, I hope your wife is is sort of aware of that, and you don't grow your business too far, and she, you know, she doesn't have to yeah. have a baby at every stage. <laughs> that would be that would be hard. And um, so, okay, so that that growth from two people to did you say over thirty people? Yeah. Right. Okay. That's huge in two years. You've changed the model, though. You've changed the business model for architecture. And this is why I'm fascinated by different business models. So what have you done to allow that to happen? So the, the, there's kind of one thing that really stands head and shoulders above everything else. And that is we found our purpose. We found our North Star, our kind of problem that we were going to solve. And okay. it took me a long time to kind of um, to kind of. Um, uh, filter that down into the fewest number of words possible and um, it's the perfect client experience that's what we're trying to create and if you think about somebody who's trying to do a home renovation that experience is, is traumatic you know it's emotionally difficult it's a learning curve there's so many aspects to it there's so many different people that come into it and our mission is to create a really perfect experience and a perfect experience doesn't necessarily mean it's a perfect process it means how you deal with problems and how you kind of deal with expectations and there's, there's almost like an infinite number of things to kind of resolve, but having that clear objective makes it a lot easier for us to make very big, very immediate decisions about what it is we're going to do. So, I mean, when we get approached for, you know, a big development project or to do our own little property development, which, you know, is things we could easily turn our hand to, we say no, because, you know, it's not aligned with our purpose. Right. And that's really kept us, you know, on a very um, uh, direct uh, core, course to kind of to growth in a way that we know is sustainable and you're right it has changed the business model significantly um, I mean one of the kind of analogies that um, that I made recently to somebody was that I kind of see myself as the Pablo Escobar of like home renovations you know so like like Pablo he had this like amazing product that everybody wanted but how that was getting delivered was so fragmented there was so much risk to the end user and what he did that was really clever was he created this vertical supply chain where you know he could control every aspect of the process to ensure that the delivery of that was as safe as possible um you know ikea have done it as well obviously but you know pablo's probably a bit more of a dramatic example and we are now taking the process from you know the the first inquiry for just fact finding for, for the client how much do things cost how does the process work you know through our website all the way to completion so we've launched hoko build which is the, the contractor and hoko shop which is like the furnishings and the aesthetics and um, the interior design and um, these are these are all things that people need to do for any renovation project anyway but why would you need to go to all these different third parties all the time it just increases the risk for the end user um 
We also have quantity surveying in-house. The structural engineering is also in-house. We've kind of taken every aspect that makes up a complete project and we now control it. And um, it means that the client and the end user, the, the homeowner, gets a much more um, pleasurable experience. It's more exciting. And uh, in a marketing environment where, where new work is driven by what people say, you know, we've kind of learned very quickly that if we delight our existing clients, you know, they're going to refer us to people. Yeah, so, you know, all the incentives are there and um, we've kind of made our lives a lot easier by actually controlling this. Although um, I know that a lot of other architects that I've spoken to have, have said that we're crazy, you know, launching a contracting business without any experience, but actually it's, it's reasonably straightforward once you've kind of got the work there. Um, so yeah. that's kind of how we did it. Yeah, no, I think I think that end to end experience, the way you described it to me is, you know, the homeowner sees the image on Pinterest and says, I want that. And you've got the design and build and interiors capability to go, sure, yeah. And by the way, it's going to cost this. Um, mm -hmm. And it, is that within your budget? No, well, we might have to alter it at the beginning. Whereas when we were chatting before, it was homeowners come to a project with something in, they've got in their mind and they don't really find out how much it's going to cost until a lot later. And then it's like, oh, well, couldn't you have told me that at the beginning? Mm. And yeah, I love it. So tell me about this crowdfunding campaign, because, again, highly unusual for an architectural firm to go crowdfunding. Yeah, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting one. I mean, the reason we've chosen to do crowdfunding, I mean, we, we had a, a variety of options for um, where we could raise investment from. And I think, um, you know, as this is kind of an entrepreneurial podcast and we, people talk about investment all the time, mm -hmm. is that there needs to be a clear reason for it. And again, it's something that comes back to our vision of this perfect client experience. And um, the reason that we're, we're raising investment at all is to scale. Um, mm -hmm. And the reason we're scaling now is because we've proved that the model works. You know, we've gone from a small boutique Glasgow firm and then we've set up architects now in, you know, London, Bristol, Brighton, Inverness, Birmingham, you know, Warwickshire, um, kind of all over the place. And we've seen that, you know, we can do that remotely and it works and it's effective. And um, there's not really a market leader in our space. So it kind of makes sense that now is the time, you know, mm -hmm. off the back of COVID, people are stuck in the UK anyway, that we should try and ramp up, you know, our territories. And um, because we um, take so much data from you know every inquiry and every architect and, and all the kind of the financial stuff as well we know exactly how much it costs to set up a new architect and how long the payback period is so we've looked at you know how many homeowners there are in the UK you know there's nearly half a million planning applications go in for extensions every year um, we kind of understand you know that where the market share opportunity is and the reason we're doing this crowdfunding is to set up more architects so we're looking to take on another 30 more architects Wow. Um, over, over the next 12 months and uh, we've got a, a really good kind of rollout strategy to do that Brilliant. and that'll, that'll take us up to you know um, 40 architects within our architectural team and um, obviously all the back-end teams go with that as well so um, we'll, we'll definitely be you know one of the, the top 50 largest um, architecture firms in the UK and certainly the only one that's doing extensions yeah um, and um, that's the kind of really exciting thing and the reason crowdfunding was um the, the best vehicle for us to do that is because we're a homeowner's architect. Yeah. You know, we're an architecture firm for the people and we now want the opportunity for our clients to own part of that journey as well because yeah. we're under no illusions that, um, you know, they're our biggest advocates. And, um, you know, it's I think it's a really exciting thing for them and a lot of them have, have asked to, to invest over the, over the last kind of wee while. 
and of our of our first round of investment as well you know um we we raised investment from six high net worths and three of them were clients first wow so that's a big sort of um uh a big kind of um thumbs up for how the service is actually delivered it is um, that's a huge endorsement that's massive yeah i can see that i mean there's been a need for this forever we we did our house up five years ago and if you'd been around we, we'd have definitely used you because the pain involved in in joining the dots between all the different people that you have to i mean i, I virtually became a project manager for the for the project and it just, the amount, of time, it was just incredible, the amount of time. I was exhausted yeah. by the time. I have to say, I did bring it in on time and under budget. So that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> but um, still, it was hard going. Yeah. Okay, so crowdfunding, you're going to get uh, a load more architects. And they are employed by you, aren't you? But it sounds from what I'm hearing, they've got quite a lot of autonomy. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting one. So yeah. um, we, we, we decided to employ them for a number of reasons. So, I mean, the, we looked at freelancers. Mm -hmm. um, we decided not to go down that route. We looked at franchising. We looked at partnerships, all these kind of different ways mm -hmm. of doing it. And I think because what we're doing um, doesn't exist anywhere within the industry and that there's a mm -hmm. fundamental um, stigma against people who do extensions, we felt that to really buy into the mission, you need to be, you know, fully integrated into the company. And the only way to do that really is by being employed. Yeah. Um, the way they're employed is, is probably quite unusual as well. They don't have working hours. Um, they're fully autonomous. We support them with absolutely everything they need. Um, they've got a really good little kind of uh, community between them anyway. Um, and uh, what they essentially get is the dream architectural job. You know, they don't have to do, um, you know, all the technical drawings. You know, our technical team deal with that. They're better at it anyway. Um, they get to spend tons of time with their clients. They can take on 10 times as many projects than their competitors because they've got more time in their hands. Uh -huh. And by freeing up the architect's time, it means that the client gets some gets more bang for their buck in terms of experience and it saves you like as a, an example as a really busy person having to go on this big learning curve because if you've got somebody who's one local and two experienced three you know um charismatic and four they've got time to give you you know it becomes a much totally different um you know process and it becomes something that's actually really exciting yeah. um rather than this like overwhelming burden um, so the employment thing does does work for us. I think um, potentially down the line, there's, there's maybe an opportunity as, as the industry kind of um, wises up to what it is we're doing for different things. But at the moment, you know, we're just growing this big monster of a company and you know, just enjoying the, the, the excitement of that. I was going to say, you're quietly getting on with it, but it, it won't be quiet for long once you go crowdfunding, which is fine, which is great. Um, after that, and I don't know whether you have, I'm guessing you have thought about it. You strike me as the sort of person who does think way ahead. What, ultimately, where are you going to take it, Danny? So I think the um, the, the big kind of plan for, for Hoku in my head is this, um, you know, revolutionary mm. idea that, that changes the way people experience home renovations. It's a global problem. You know, since we were living in caves, we were doing home renovations. Um, there's there's this kind of innate need to make your home a special place and um, there's so many other um, industries that have been kind of revolutionary revolutionized by technology and architecture and construction is you know way behind the game so uh, I really see that you know the kind of um, uh, human aspect of what we do is is already very very different and the way we're using tech is the thing that's going to take that globally mm -hmm. um, so we've already got our eyes set on an office space in Dublin that we'd like to kind of see how the mm -hmm. international leap goes 
uh, in an environment which is, you know, the same climate, the same architectural setup, albeit in a different um, country and obviously in Europe. Um, and if that works and that goes well, I think we'll be looking uh, further afield at, you know, the States and Australia and New Zealand places again that, you know, without language barriers to begin with and, you know, much bigger markets. And probably by that point, um, will we'll maybe be a, a totally different sort of company. But I think long term, I could see it being this kind of this global thing. That's kind of where I want it to get to. Um, but I'm not getting too ahead of myself. You know, no. there's a lot of there's a lot of big hurdles to overcome so far. But um, if we keep this kind of rate of of uh, traction we've got so far, you know, it might not actually be that far ahead. No, indeed. Um, I, the problem has existed, as you say, for for hundreds of years. It's just amazing that nobody has solved it the way you're solving it um, and um, joining those dots is so blindingly obvious now you point it out I, I don't know why nobody's done it before Danny yeah I, I mean I think there's a lot of reasons why I think the, the industry in general is is quite fear-mongering okay. um, and it, it's quite patriarchal to an extent okay. as well um, it's um, there's this kind of well-worn path of kind of where you go I mean um, I remember I read this ancient book called the blue ocean strategy i don't know if you've ever come across it but the, the the analogy they made was about circuses and how circuses were always competing for you know bigger tents more animals more acrobats you know bigger venues and it's cost 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 and then Cirque du Soleil came in and they completely flipped it on its head and they thought Do you know what we're not going to have venues we're just going to have exotic acrobats and we're going to hire out theaters and we're going to market it to the high the high class and it's become this phenomenon Mm. And um, I feel like, you know, there's this enormous market that nobody really cares about. And everybody kind of thinks, oh, why would you want to do extensions? Extensions are boring. They're not. You know, you can really you can be so creative with um, any budget if you've actually got the time to spend on it. And uh, that's the bit I find exciting is taking something that people generally are trying to avoid and putting it on a pedestal. And um, I think because we've got like a really young team there like really young, really energetic. We have so much fun in the office. Um, we've got this like really strong culture that, that we're the ones to do it. You know, it's, there's no shortcut to, um, you know, building a really strong culture. And I think we've kind of, we've got that. And that's the kind of um, the backbone you need to actually try and change the world. Absolutely. It totally is. My last question, Danny, before any more babies are born, um, is if your business had a personality or a character, how would you describe it? Oh, um, oh, that's that's a really good question. I think it would be, um, yeah, that's that's probably a tricky one. Do you know what we we had this um, culture workshop and I asked the same question, got a million answers back. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I think we'd be it'd be fun, you know, professional and um, sexy. <laughs> Cool. I love it. Absolutely love it. Listen, it's been an absolute delight to speak to you, Danny. I can feel the energy coming through the screen. Um, I wish you all the best with the business, the babies, the children, the family. Give, give my best to your wife as well. Hope it all goes well. And I'm going to watch out for the crowdfunding campaign because I, I would like to invest too. I think I think you've got something quite special there. That's amazing. Thank you so much. Great. That'd be awesome. Thanks, Rebecca.
thank you for listening to our Entrepreneurial Journey podcast. You can find us at tricrest.com and you can find Fuel My Business there too. Answer the 12 questions in less than 60 seconds and find out exactly what's happening in your business and then even better, learn how to fix it. Did you know you can access our Tricrest partners through Fuel My Business too? Just upgrade your subscription and you can get access to them in a group coaching session once a month or even one-to-one. Enjoy. Thank you.